The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Louis Gillette. He is a professor of obstetrics and gynecology, an endowed chair of marine genomics, director of marine biomedicine and environmental sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina and Hollings Marine Laboratory in Charleston. Welcome, Dr. Gillette. Thank you for having me. Well, I had the pleasure of hearing you speak at the 33rd National Pesticide Forum, which was held in Orlando, Florida, in April of 2015. There you presented both a keynote and a workshop on two separate but very important points linking food, health, and agriculture. So I wondered if we could explore a little bit about that. Your keynote focused on endocrine disruptors in the environment and reproductive health of alligators. Can you tell me a little bit about why studying alligators' reproductive health might be pertinent to humans? That's a great question, and I get it all the time. It ends up that we use alligators like we use fish and frogs and various other animals as sentinels in the environment. The premise that we work on is that if the environment is not healthy for them, then it's probably not healthy for us. And given the fact that alligators don't get up and fly away like birds do, that they actually are at the top of the food chain, then we suspect that if there's something going on with their environment, that we're going to see it in those kinds of animals early on. The second aspect of why we study alligators and why that might say something about us, for example, or other species, is that one of the things we've learned with the revolution in in genetics is that at the kind of molecular or the gene level, pretty much an ovary is an ovary and a testis is a testis. Of course, there are differences between an alligator and human, but there are also many, many, many commonalities. And so if we're seeing problems with the developing ovary or the developing testis of an alligator, that's kind of a red flag for my group to start to ask, could the same kinds of issues be a concern for humans or other species? Mm-hmm. Well, some of the slides that you presented were really startling in the fact that you showed how during maybe the 60s, levels of DDT in Lake Apopka, which is just a stone's throw of Disney World, just to give people a geographic reference, that the levels of DDT then were not so different than the ones we see today. I think that's actually probably one of the most disturbing things for most people is that we ban or we limit the use of certain kinds of chemicals. But DDT is probably one of the most classic examples. I always have a photo that I actually show from an old advertising campaign where DDT was called Duradust. And um, it's the, the, the byline was its action lasts and lasts and lasts. And if they only knew that 40 and 50 and 60 and 70 years later, not only are we still measuring DDT present in, in people and in wildlife, even though it hasn't been used since the 70s, but its actions, um, the actions that we never dreamed of, it's, it's one of the components of DDT is actually an estrogen or acts like an estrogen. Other components act as anti-androgens, that is, it blocks the function of testosterone or it blocks our adrenal, which is involved in stress response. So 
These compounds are still present. The metabolites, that is the breakdown products of DDT, are still present. And although they are declining in the environment slowly, um, though the key word there is slowly, they're still mm-hmm. present in the food chain. They're still present in these animals. And the important part to also to be concerned with, because my interest is globally, DDT is still used in lots of places of the world for malaria control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that presents a real conflict for those of us who are making decisions whether or not to use these products. You know, are there safer alternatives? Oftentimes we find alternatives, and then years down the road we go, oh, wait a second, actually they cause a problem too. And I'm thinking specifically of, say, BPA, where we have replacements for BPA, and yet they've never really been fully studied either. You're making a really important point, and, and it's the old, you know, do I jump out of the frying pan into the fire? Because I know the, you know, the frying pan's hot. And you're right. We've replaced lots of chemicals. The poster child for me are the polychlorinated biphenyls, the PCBs, which mm-hmm. were in electrical equipment and transformers, and we know they're incredibly persistent. And we know that they're involved in altering, for example, thyroid function and thyroid disease. And we, we replaced the chlorine in those chemicals with bromine, and we realized they do the exact same thing, and they're just as persistent. And you know, then we decided, well, okay, we'll, we'll change the bromine to fluorine, <laughs> and fluorine is even more persistent. So, yeah, sometimes we actually jump quickly saying that it's a component of a chemical without saying, no, wait a minute, it's the, the chemical or the structure of that chemical. And part of that has been an evolution of, of our own understanding and the ability for us to do analytical chemistry. And our understanding that incredibly low concentrations of these compounds in developing embryos are biologically important. They basically can impact our health, not just during development, but later in life. It's this whole embryonic origins of adult disease that many of us now work on. Right. So you've brought up a really important point is that we try and make decisions about, you know, what are the products we should be using today. I always say I'm, I'm discouraged that we still want to use DDT, which is a 50-year-old or 70-year-old solution to malaria. We should be smarter than that. But it seems that, of course, as many things come down, to be honest, it comes down to money. Yeah, it does. And you know what I also thought was very important? You mentioned how we only can measure what what we can measure or what we can see. And yet, in thinking about all of the chemicals in the environment and the complex interactions between and among these compounds, we really know just a fraction of what we're doing to ourselves, don't we? It's scary how little we know. Now, I mean, there's two things to remember. The first is is that our bodies are designed to detoxify chemicals. We have, we have livers, we have kidneys. When we were living in caves, of course, we were exposed to the chemicals that came out of smoke. And, and so we've always been exposed to some chemicals. And, of course, plants make various kinds of chemicals. And we know that there's natural products like arsenic. The problem we're dealing with today is the one you just identified, and it's this concept of mixtures. We're no longer exposed to you know, tens or hundreds of chemicals each day. We're exposed to thousands of chemicals every day. And our bodies are not designed to detoxify many of the chemicals we're exposed to. In fact, our bodies don't even know how to handle many of these chemicals. They get bound up in our fat. They get bound to proteins in our blood. And they're persistent. They stay around for a long time. Or even chemicals like you identified, BPA, bisphenol A, that's associated with plastics or plasticizers, even though they're not persistent, that is, they don't last and we do get rid of them, they're so common in the environment 
that we, you know, we've done studies where almost every single mom that we actually study out of 400 in a recent study, almost every single one of them had detectable levels. Now, the detectable levels were quite, uh, they varied extensively because of whether you were just exposed by something you drank just before you came into our clinic or whether, in fact, you were exposed yesterday. But the point is, is that we're exposed daily to thousands of chemicals. Mm-hmm. Another thing you mentioned during your keynote that I thought was so important was that you showed how the timing is really makes a difference. So you could have a child exposed to an endocrine disruptor, say, at several days into development in utero. And you could also have a child exposed at, say, age 14, and the outcomes would be totally different. Yes, you've identified probably one of the great discoveries of the last decade. Um, one of the things that came out of the Human Genome Project, and you know, like all great projects that we've actually had in this country and other countries, whether it be you know, going to the moon or, in this case, it was the Human Genome Project, we went in thinking that there would be three or 400,000 genes. We thought there would be a gene for Alzheimer's and a gene for this and a gene for that. And what we actually realized is that we probably only have 10 or 20,000 genes, probably about 20,000 genes. The genes are more like words. You put them together into sentences and they mean something. And if you change the words around, the sentence structure changes, but also then the meaning changes. And so one of the things we started to realize is that as the embryo develops, that certain genes have to come on in certain pathways or certain sentences. If you will, you have to write that early novel, which ends up being a child. And if you change the words around, you still end up with two arms and two legs, and you look like you have a perfectly normal baby. But sometime later in its life, it could be in childhood or it could actually be young adulthood, or we now suspect even in kind of, kind of if you will, early adulthood, you're talking 20s and 30s and early 40s, all of a sudden we see diseases start to come online in women. We suspect things like polycystic ovary syndrome or endometriosis, that many of these diseases potentially are being set up during embryonic development. They don't present themselves until that young woman appears in a clinic, if you will, you know, 20 or 30 years later. So we are now not only interested in what is that young woman's health, but what can she tell us about the pregnancy of her mom. What can, what can she tell us about her dad's job and his history? Because the history of the pregnancy that generated that child 20, 30 years ago may in fact be as important as that young woman or young man's history, if you will, um, since they were born. Mm-hmm. Now, I should let our listeners know that you've been studying alligators for 25 years at the University of Florida. And then from the University of Florida, you went to South Carolina. But what I'd like to know is, during the time that you were studying alligators and you were looking at these changes and you were, you had this, you must have had this aha moment when you said, oh my gosh, you know, we're seeing these fertility problems in alligators and they are mirroring what we're seeing in humans. The PR spin that we get is, hey, people with cancer, they're living longer. And yet you notice that actually cancer rates are increasing. We're seeing rises in infertility, just as what you saw in Lake Apopka with, with your alligator population. Where do we go from here? Well, um, you've, again, you've identified really important concepts. 
I don't think we can belittle the point that people with cancer are living longer. Given that I'm a cancer survivor myself, I'm quite I'm quite pleased with that yeah. um, success. The the take home is is that yes, we have better treatments. The take home, however, is that we should in fact have less disease. So where do we go from here? I, I I think that for me the most important thing that I tell folks is moderation when it comes to a lot of aspects of life. I think that one has to think about what they eat. Of course, this is what a good part of your show is about and, and how you make wise choices. I think it's moderate exercise, eating correctly, trying to understand and handle the stress in one's life. But I think it's really important to be educated. In other words, you don't just throw everything in your house out because you think it's bad. You really do have to do your homework and understand what are the potential issues that may be affecting your health, the health of your family, the health of your children or your grandchildren. And I think the important part for me is that there are some you know, relatively simple things that one can do that actually starts to decrease, for example, exposure. So let me give you one example, a little example. We're just in the middle of, we're submitting a paper on this. It should be going in in the next couple of weeks. We asked a very simple question. There are these classic compounds called phthalates which are in personal care products. They're also associated with plasticizers. We know that they're ubiquitous. They're very common. Almost every sample that has gone to the Centers for Disease Control for the analytical uh, analyses of blood finds this in almost every single person in the United States. And so we asked, can we do a simple educational program? Can we make a little PowerPoint? And so we took a very, very selected class. These are all educated women. They were all part of the medical school environment, some secretaries, some young physicians, some, you know, scientists. And we just did this little PowerPoint. And one of the things we were able to show is that by a simple educational program, we could take the people that had the very highest levels of phthalates and knock them down to what we're considering to be a baseline. That is, there's some things, no matter what you do behaviorally, you know, you change the use of your personal care products and what you eat and how much canned food you eat, you just can't get lower just because there's this other exposure going on. But the point that we made in this study was that by some very simple things, people can change their exposures. They can drop their exposures to levels that may not be biologically important, may not compromise health. They may still be there, but it goes back to this idea is that we can handle certain numbers of chemicals, we can handle certain levels, but once you get above a certain number of exposures and once you start to get above a certain concentration, our bodies just can't handle that. Mm-hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned in to Food Sleuth Radio, where we are speaking with Dr. Louis Gillette. He's Director of Marine Biomedicine and Environmental Sciences Center and Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Medical University of South Carolina. You know, I, I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about this idea of personal choice. And I think that's important, and I certainly believe education is important, although sometimes it feels like in education it feels like I'm hitting my head against the wall, (laughs) you know, because there's so many things that are out of our control. And one of the things that you brought up during your workshop on water quality, which was so fascinating, had to do with nitrate levels in drinking water. Now, this is really a situation where we depend on organizations and agencies, municipalities larger than ourselves to monitor our water and make sure it's safe. And not everyone can afford a water filter. But what you showed in your lab is that having nitrate levels, and please correct me if I'm wrong, having nitrate levels at the U.S. acceptable limits, 10 parts per million, I believe, 
of nitrates was enough to block testosterone production. Uh, you're correct. So what we, in fact, have found, and we've been working on this for a while, and there's a lot of chemistry that goes behind it. We're always worried about nitrate, for example, fertilizer, because of its ecological impacts. I mean, everyone knows you put a little nitrate in a pond, and all of a sudden you have an algal bloom. We know that high levels of nitrate are associated with a condition called methemoglobemia or blue baby syndrome. We call it in fish rusty blood syndrome. And in fact, the reason we actually have a policy and we actually control nitrate at 10 parts per million is because that protects babies and protects us from developing that, that condition, methemoglobemia. What nitrate or nitrite does is it binds to the iron groups, the heme groups in our hemoglobin, and blocks the ability for us to pick up oxygen and transfer oxygen to our bodies. But lots of enzymes, lots of chemicals in our body that are involved in synthesizing other chemicals that are important or clearing chemicals from our body and our liver, those also have these heme groups or these iron groups. And what we've been able to kind of identify, and we, we suspected it, and then we've been able to do some of the work, that one of the central parts of making some of the hormones that are critical for our function, that is, uh, for example, testosterone, can be blocked or their synthesis altered by exposure to nitrate and nitrite. And it's not just us. Um, this work has also been done, for example, in rodents in laboratory conditions and um, nitrate in drinking water and find very similar kinds of things. And so we have to remember from a policy perspective is that we make rules, let's say 10 parts per million, based upon a disease that we consider to be um, important because of its lethal implications um, in drinking water for babies. Um, that does not mean that it precludes all kinds of other things, and, and that's why we constantly are supposed to be evaluating the literature, but we also have to remember that there's constantly a battle going on for those who have a vested interest in using those chemicals or using our environment in a certain way. And so there's a constant battle between, if you will, economic health, if you will, for the nation versus um, environmental or public health. Yeah, and I have a hard time separating those two. But I believe that you can't, um, yeah. although some do. I, I can't understand how you can have a healthy environment if you don't have healthy people. Exactly. Or a healthy economy if you don't have a healthy environment. Correct. And one of the things you actually opened with at your keynote was, in fact, this idea that you were talking to a group of people who were interested in pesticides and their effect on public health and the environment. And you said, this is great. You know, I don't have to convince you that the environment is important. And I, I thought about that for a moment. And I thought, yeah, we do still have to convince people that the environment is important. How do you think we should do that? You, um, <laughs> you have me stumped. I've actually been doing this for 30 years. I give a huge number of public talks. I've, I think I've made something like 20 TV specials of various kinds from all over the world. And so, you know, I've been an educator for a good part of my professional career. I still think it's education. But I believe that down in my gut, the way you do it is you actually take children outside and you explore the environment with them. You, you let them, in fact, discover what an amazing place this world is. And more importantly, you, you do it in such a way so it's not just that it's pretty, but you actually help them understand how the system works. You know, why we're dependent upon a healthy environment, why we're dependent upon having trees to make oxygen, and we need clean water. And I believe it has to be at that 
basic level. I mean, we actually have to get down in the dirt, and um, we have to take our future generations with us. We, we need to make them understand how important this is. And you don't find that in video games, and you don't find that in just kind of opening up a book and reading in class, in a science class. You have to go and, and basically get wet in a pond. Yeah, I so agree with you. I was reading an interview that you had done with, I believe it was Frontline, and you were describing what had happened after the release of Rachel Carson's book in the 60s. She was coming out and talking about some of the things that we're proving today, or you're proving today. And she was called a communist. She was called anti-America. You say that you know she was, she was seen as a threat. She was going to destroy the world's food supply. And, and you, you commented then that in those days, nature was our enemy. And sometimes I think that the media messages that we are still exposed to today, especially if you open up some of the commercial farming magazines, it still shows this idea of man controlling nature as opposed to working with her. Yeah, we haven't learned much, have we? Yeah. <laughs> it's, um, we still, I mean, I understand we have to have, you know, flood control regions, but, but, you know, we're starting to realize that all those places we called swamps or wetlands were basically a way that, um, Mother Nature, if you will, basically absorbs that extra water and puts it into the aquifer for us to drink at some later time. I still think the same battles and the same public relations arguments that actually worked in the 60s against Rachel Carson are still being used against us today. Yeah. That somehow we, we're presented with a, a threat to our food supply. We absolutely have to have modern genetics and modern pesticides in order to feed the world cheap food. And, of course, we know in lots of places of the world that's not true. And it didn't have to be true in the United States, but we still play the game that way. So, again, I think that science education is lacking in lots of places. But, you know, the vast majority of people I talk to, and I give public talks quite often, it's astonishing how intelligent my audience is. They all are not bought into environmentalism. Um, there's lots of different audiences I talk to um, in housing groups and home groups that, you know, I think are showing up to try and, make sure that I, I do a balanced perspective, and we try very hard to do that. But I think the important part is to realize that there is no replacement for a healthy environment. If we don't have a healthy environment, we don't have healthy food. If we don't have healthy food, we don't have healthy kids and grandkids. And if we don't have healthy grandkids and healthy kids, then quite bluntly, we don't really have a country um, that we are hoping uh, will continue. Mm-hmm. How did you first get interested in this research? Um, actually, it's serendipity. I actually started working on alligators a number of years ago because it was an endangered species, and the state fish and game wanted to understand the basic biology of this animal. It was also very cool because, I don't know if you know, alligators determine whether they end up being boys or girls by the temperature at which the egg is held for a, a couple of days during incubation. So, wow. um, and quite honestly, alligators are dinosaurs, and I was a kid that never grew out of my <laughs> love of dinosaurs. So, um, of course, Jurassic Park's coming um, out again soon, and so we're all going to get excited about that. But, you know, the take-home is we started asking just basic biology questions about these incredible animals living out here in the environment that were an endangered species. And that 
then started saying, well, wait a minute, things are not adding up. I think, as you said at the beginning of the show, we started to find things that just did not add up. These animals were not, quote, reproducing like they were supposed to. We were finding abnormalities of the ovary. We were finding abnormalities of the testis when we were looking at these little alligators. And what was really intriguing is that those abnormalities, for example, we found in the ovary, that was the aha moment for me because the abnormalities we found in the ovary were exactly the abnormalities that were being found in little girls who had been exposed to a pharmaceutic agent called diethylstilbestrol, DES. So this was the DES daughter complex. And these little girls were exposed to this drug because their moms had the potential to have premature birth. And their ovaries had very specific abnormalities. My alligators had the same abnormalities, but they were not being given drugs. So the question then became, where in the world are these animals getting their estrogens from? And that's when we discovered that a number of pesticides were able to mimic estrogens. Mm -hmm. So you've been doing research for a long time, several decades now. And I wonder, do you have any wishes that there are any specific policies that you'd like to see changed as a result of your research? Well, I, I would love for the, for the federal government to actually uh, follow the rules that we've already passed. In the 1990s, late 1990s, we, we basically passed the Food Quality Protection Act for children, in which we, it's part of that law, is that we're supposed to test children's foods for things that are potential endocrine disruptors. We are now almost 20 years past that, and we're still debating what kind of tests we should be using, largely because the delaying actions or the vested interests that are involved in that. So, I mean, I, I would just love us to, to make sure that the food supply for children, it's not that, it's not that moms and dads and, and um, grandmas and grandpas aren't important, but I think we all understand that if we don't have healthy children, we don't actually have um, healthy families. And, of course, a central part of that is, is clean water and healthy food. Mm -hmm. We just have a couple of minutes left. I just want to give you an opportunity to share anything else from your research that you want to make sure our listeners take home. No, I think that we've covered, I think, the most important take-home message. And the most important take-home message is that they actually have to get as much education as, as they can about these topics. They have to be realistic about it. And they need to try and, in fact, make a difference every day. I, I guess I'm still enough a product of the 60s myself that I believe that individuals make a difference, whether at home or in their local communities. And I, I hope that uh, people take that to heart. Well, I'm going to have links to the two presentations that you gave in Orlando. And just to remind our listeners again, I saw Dr. Gillette speak at the 33rd National Pesticide Forum in Orlando, Florida. And I'll provide those two links. Is there any other website that you would like our listeners to go to to learn more? Actually, not not really. If they want news, then there's actually a basically a link that comes out every day. It's called Above the Fold. Oh, I love um, that. Yeah. And it's for the folks that are interested. It's both it's both bad news and good news. That, that's the positive. But it's everything they have to do with environmental health. And so. It's an incredible place that if you want to become educated and you want to know what's going on in English language periodicals, newspapers, magazines, etc., throughout the world, that's important because it also makes you realize that maybe some of the local stories are actually global stories, and it helps you become better educated. Absolutely. I love Above the Fold, and I'll make sure that our listeners get that link as well. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. 
And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia. And just to remind everyone, we have been speaking with Dr. Louis Gillette, who is Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Endowed Chair of Marine Genomics, Director of Marine Biomedicine and Environmental Sciences at the Medical University of South Carolina and Holings Marine Laboratory in Charleston, South Carolina. Thank you so much for your research, Dr. Gillette, and for spending time with me. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.